be seated. And welcome to Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, you can turn in your bulletins or Bibles to Exodus 15. We've been in a series in the last uh, few months uh, on Exodus called Encountering God in a Disenchanted Age. So I'm curious to know if you consider yourself a creative person. Do you consider yourself a creative person? And if so, what, uh, what, at, what's the, what are the logs that are thrown on the fire of your creativity? And what's the, the water and the wet blankets that douse it uh, and, and uh, cause it to simmer? Creativity is uh, making something of the world. It's taking what already exists and making something new with it. One of my friends described beauty in this way, that beauty adds, uh, the, adds to the available stock of reality. It doesn't just point the way, it actually uh, makes more of reality. This is reflective of our call, whether we uh, think of ourselves as creative or not, that we are called to uh, exercise dominion in the world as people made in God's image. That we're called to, to steward and to rule uh, in the earth, regardless of our family situation or where we live or what we do for a living, whether we're paid for it or not, all of us are called to make something of the world. So maybe you're an artist and you, know, you do this every day. You practice your craft uh, by uh, running the scales, memorizing your lines, writing your poetry, painting on your canvas. But many of you don't call yourself an artist at all, and yet chances are you still need to make something of the world. You still need to exercise creativity. Um, Problem solving is an act of creativity. Especially the, the more intense the problem, the more creativity is required, right? Uh, if you are uh, required to make dinner of any kind, even if it's just for yourself, you need to make something of the world, uh, even if it's just the microwave and your frozen nuggets. You're making something. Uh, writing papers, even if you don't enjoy the subject matter, is an act of creativity. You're making something new doesn't mean that it's well-written or well-researched. You'll find out. But you're making something new, aren't you? Um, conflict resolution is an act of creativity. Building cabinets is an act of creativity. Sitting on a jury, listening intently. You're bearing the image of God as you do that for the sake of justice. Playing tag during recess, even. You're exercising creativity with your mind and body. It happens every day, and this is good. It's part of our call to serve God and our neighbor by making something new of the world. But you know what the thing is that creativity is really hard, isn't it? The more creative you have to be, the more tired you are at the end of the day. Seth Godin writes a lot about the creative process and he says that creative work is like emotional ditch digging. And so we often procrastinate and find excuses to not be creative in the way that we're called to be. The thing that the world requires of us the most, we find ways to procrastinate, am I, am I right? We procrastinate from acts of creativity because it's hard work. It's exhausting and requires of it every day. So what's fueling your creativity and what's blocking your creativity? This is not an ancillary question to the human life. And if you're following Jesus, if you, if you consider yourself a Christian, this is not a side question because your creativity will impact the people around you, the life around you, and the scriptures teach that much of human creativity will make its way into the new heavens and the new earth uh, through the resurrection of Jesus. So your creativity is a big deal, whether or not you're exercising it. Um, this is about love. This is about loving God and loving neighbor. 
or the lack thereof. Um, we have an opportunity to curve inward when it's time to be creative. Either not be creative at all because it's too hard or to just use it for our own ends rather than the kingdom of God. So what are you doing with your creativity? Uh, and how do you need God to restore your creativity for the life of the world? We've been, as I said, studying Exodus this fall. And once we get to Exodus 15, there's a remarkable change that happens once we cross the threshold of Exodus 14 and get into Exodus 15. It's a profound difference. All we have is the words. The 93% of communication that's nonverbal, we don't have access to. We have access to the words, and it tells us a lot. Because once we cross over the threshold from Exodus 14 to that Exodus 15, it's the, the tone dramatically changes. The tone from Exodus 1.1 to 14.13 has been somber, incredibly somber. Once we cross into Exodus 15, there's an exultant, joyful, overflowing act of poetry and creativity from the people of God. We're like, wow, the people of Israel, they weren't just slaves after all. Turns out this is a nation of artists capable of poetry, capable of song, capable of playing musical instruments. We'd never seen this up till now. To the people of Israel, they've been making bricks for, the, for Pharaoh. And now all of a sudden, they're making beauty for God and neighbor. And it's amazing. The tone, the genre, uh, the, the trajectory of Exodus seems to shift once we get to Exodus 15. Now, why is that? What unlocked all this creative expression to God and neighbor in the life of the Israelites? And what can be our, what can unblock our creativity? What can set us free to more creative, intentional acts of love towards God and neighbor? We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at three blocks to creativity and how the living God met every single one of them. He met them for Moses and Israel. He can meet them for you, whatever creativity is required of you in this season of your life. So the first threat is interesting. The first threat uh, or the first block to creativity is menacing threats. Menacing threats. Have you ever been scared out of your wits? Have you ever been anxious? Have you ever found yourself to be irritated and reactive to life? When we're irritated and reactive and, and scared and afraid for our well-being and our life, we're not creative, are we? I'm not, at least. I find myself shutting down. Uh, I don't think of new ideas. I can't make something of the world. I'm only reacting to the, to, to the people or circumstances that are reacting to me. Uh, playfulness goes out the window. Focus the deep focus we need to do good work goes out the window. So what gave Moses and Israel the freedom to sing this new song? This is a new song. This is, they made it up on the fly, and it's a great song. Um, uh, Exodus 15 says that it's part of the repertoire of heaven, that the song of Moses actually is being sung in heaven right now. It's, it's part of the worship of the living God. So what happened for Moses and Israel? Um, let's look at verse 1 of Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for, uh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Okay, so why are they singing uh, to the Lord? You can see in the preposition for. There's a reason for he has triumphed gloriously. And who has he triumphed over? Well, the horse and his rider, Pharaoh's chariots, Pharaoh's chosen officers, the weapons of war that for all of their life they had been in fear of. They had 
to hide from the chariots and the horses and the trained officers. That's what kept them making bricks. And all of a sudden, they've seen in Exodus 14, the Lord uh, throwing the chariots and the horses and uh, the chosen officers and like plunking them like stones into the Red Sea and they're drowning. What an incredible relief this must have been. But not just that. Uh, they were also afraid of the sea, too. The nation, they were the menacing threat of the Red Sea. And, you know, and the Israelites thought of the sea as a place where kind of darkness and, and demonic reality existed. So they had a lot of reasons to be afraid of, of the Red Sea, spiritually and physically. And they were pinned. I mean, they were like the chariots and, and were being driven by highly trained officers. And, and, and horses are, are, are galloping and, and frothing and, and ready to trample them and make a bloody end to them. And then they've got the sea, and the sea is vast and, and dangerous and, and deep, and they've got nowhere else to go. So it's like, do I drown or do I get trampled? And just, I just, can you imagine even the anxiety of being put to the precipice of your life in such a cruel way after being a slave your whole life? And then miraculously, the sea opens up and you walk through. It doesn't even touch you. You're walking through on dry ground and you come through and you're standing on the banks of the Red Sea and you see it closing up on your cruelest enemies. And in a single motion, the living God deals with this menacing threat of the Israelites. This just caused them to spring like a beach ball coming out of a submerged uh, waters going, whoa, the Lord is great. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. He's dealt with the horse. He's dealt with the rider. He's dealt with the chosen, trained, highly trained uh, officers. He split the Red Sea in the process, and then he used the Red Sea to drown them forever. This must have been an incredible relief. I mean, they were walking all night long. Their voices must have been hoarse. They must have been totally running on fumes and adrenaline, having passed through that Red Sea. And then they got to look out and breathe what they had never been able to breathe before, the, the free air, breathe a sigh of relief. We're no longer slaves. Why are we no longer slaves? The Lord has dealt with our enemies. Maybe it was like a five-hour worship service, and we're just getting a little glimpse of it here. I don't know if you've ever met someone who has recently been they experience some kind of deliverance from the living God. God's provided for them, or he's dealt with a threat in some way, and they just breathe a huge sigh of relief, and they're ready to praise, and they're ready to worship. This is what worship is. It's a response of praise to the living God, and when we are delivered by God, our capacity to be God's image bearers in the world and worship him uh, goes way up. So what's your threat? What's your en- Who's your enemy? Maybe, maybe you have your... You're your own worst enemy. And you've got uh, self-criticism tapes, self-hatred tapes. Maybe you have self-sabotaging habits in your life. And you feel like you're a slave to addiction. Or maybe your, uh, your enemy is, is another person. You've got a bully in your life. Or, or your kids are being bullied. Or maybe you have a critic, someone, someone on the internet or someone in, per, in real person. They're just a menacing threat to you. They... They love to harass you. Uh, or maybe you're experiencing the, the harassing, menacing nature of, of the enemy of our souls, of Satan, who in, in, in ways we don't fully understand, uh, seeks to end our life and shut us down and threaten us. 
and accuse us and bring up past sins and bring up past failures and make us feel embarrassed and make us feel accused. Whatever the case may be, Jesus Christ came and he lived our life and he died on the cross to to forever, not just forgive our sins, that's an important thing, but also to set us free to love and worship him and to deal decisively with our enemies. Uh, Jesus said, don't fear the person who can kill the body. Um, Fear him who can throw both body and soul in hell. What he's saying is, when you fear God, you experience deliverance. Maybe you're still gonna have to deal with some vestige of that threat from here on out, but Jesus Christ has decisively delivered you from your enemies and by turning to him in faith, saying, Jesus, deliver me from the internal and external enemy, you will experience his deliverance. He will deal with the threat, no matter if the threat is physical or spiritual or both. And when he does... And you can finally breathe with Moses and the people of Israel on the other side of the Red Sea. You're going to find that your creative potential to creatively make something of the world in love for neighbor and love for God uh, is increased. And you need it to be increased because you need to fulfill your calling. We need you to. But that's not the only threat that we have to deal with. Um, the threat that, another threat that we have to deal with, another creative block that we all experience is a lack of vision. We have to deal with uh, the threat of uh, uh, the, uh, the th- you know threats in our life, but we also have to deal with a lack of vision. Creativity requires vision. You can't make something new in the world unless you see it first in the eyes of your imagination, or unless you intuit it. Without vision, we can't make something good in the world. We cannot make new things in the world. Vision is uh, a compelling picture of what will be, or what could be. It's a compelling picture of what could be or what will be. And we need vision to be creative. Have you ever come to the point where you're like, I've been creative all day long, and I don't know what to make for dinner. I need, you're looking to the cookbook for vision, <laughs> you know, of what could be. But also, we need vision for uh, writing legislation or building the frame of a house. For hundreds of years, the Israelite had no vision. They only had orders. They were just... Yeah. Pharaoh had the vision, and it was for his own selfish purposes. So they had to encounter God. They were disenchanted. They had to encounter the living God, and he supplied them that vision. He gave them that vision. He said, here's what will be. Here's what could be, and you're going to be a part of it, and I want you to help build this world. I'm leading you to my home. So we see in Exodus 15 that the Israelites and Moses had been listening to God, listening to his promises. Because God had promised them uh, very specific things, and we read about it here. Uh, look at with me in verse 13. Exodus 15, 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What's interesting is that this is in the past tense. It's a song. It's like they're singing about something that's already happened but the people of Israel are not in God's holy abode yet. And and the the future enemies that they have have not been dealt with. Look at verse 14. Uh, There's almost like a second exodus described here. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. So the Philistines, future enemies. Verse 15, now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. More future enemies. And then trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. 
All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Now, what's going on here? This song is being sung in, uh, as if Moses and the people of Israel have already gone up to the mountain of God. There are people in Philistia and Moab and Canaan that saw them coming, that got out of their way because they were so afraid of the living God. And they parted like the Red Sea and let the people of Israel pass and walk up to the mountain where God lives, where they could worship him without fear, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they could hear God's revelation and respond to him and live an enchanted life, that is, a life where they could see and know and worship the living God. They're singing the song as if they're already up here on the mountain, even though they're actually down by the Red Sea. They're singing it in the past tense because they have hope that this is what God will do, that once they leave the shores of the Red Sea, they will come to a place where their enemies are scattered, where the Lord has set a table for them, where he's, where he's made a beautiful home for him, where he has been creative in advance on their behalf. They're singing as if they're already there. And that song will give them hope in the desert when they're not there. If only they would have continued to sing the song of Moses in the wilderness. It would have kept them from the complaining that killed them. It would have kept them from the grousing that divided them. This future vision was so important for them, not only to sing on the banks of the Red Sea, but to sing beyond the banks of the Red Sea. Don't we all need this kind of vision to keep being creative when we have caffeine headaches? And when the thing isn't working, we're supposed to make it work. And when the paper's not yet written and it's 1 a.m. and it's due at, you know, 7.45 a.m. Or um, when we're having to deal with yet another human resource issue that will not solve itself, don't we need this kind of vision to continue to be creative out of love for God and neighbor? We need this vision. Because otherwise, all we can see is what we can see and nothing else. All we can see is what we complain about and nothing else. Future vision is a necessary component uh, to our creativity. And when we are lacking the vision, the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, will supply it for us. They will give us the vision. God will give us the vision as he gave Moses and Israelites the vision, and we all need it. Otherwise, we will complain. So menacing threats, big creative block. Lack of vision, another huge block to creativity. The, the third and final one, although there are many more, but the third one that this text references is uh, isolation. Isolation. Um, no, when we have no creative community, our creativity shrivels up. No one to share our creativity with. No one who appreciates or can give witness to the creativity that we exercise. No one who can encourage us. No one who can refine our creativity. When, we, when we're isolated, when we lack creative community, uh, that will be a significant creative block. And, you know, the people of Israel uh, did not have opportunities to share their cultural services to one another. They had no opportunity to create culture together. They were too busy making bricks. They're too busy saving Israelite boys from uh, the Red Sea. Although when you think about it, Moses' little baby ark was an act of creativity on the part of his mother, wasn't it? 
And do you remember Miriam who followed the little baby ark to the uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt, and negotiated, you know, she was creative. She negotiated a deal uh, for, for, for Moses to be nursed by his birth mother and raised by his birth mother and at the same time be raised in the palace of Egypt and be protected. Well, I love what Miriam does in this text because she takes a, form, uh, a whole horde of former slaves and she leads them in a beautiful act of cultural renewal. Look with me in verse 20 of Exodus 15. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I love this picture here. Can you imagine thousands of women who have never been allowed to sing this song, who have never been allowed to dance or to play musical instruments, now expressing with all their heart and all their might uh, a creative uh, expression of renewal. And here Miriam is uh, leading these former slaves in uh, this act of creativity. It reminds me of uh, uh, someone uh, who's a member here, Tiffany Moeller. Tiffany Moeller leads art projects with Anne's house. Uh, This is a, a safe house for female minors who have been rescued from sex trafficking. And every month, Tiffany gets together with them and and leads art projects with them. This is the kind of creativity that God has asked us to do in the world. Creativity not just for its own sake, but creativity that is is shared with his precious daughters and sons that he loves and cares about. So Miriam is set free, and then she's setting free these women in an act of cultural renewal and creativity. Um, All of us have people in our life who are shut down. All of us have people in our life, don't we, who are discouraged, don't we? That, that they're stuck and, they, and they're totally stuck in self-criticism or, or they're discouraged or they're under threat. And we have an opportunity as God's image bearers to animate their creativity in the same way that Miriam animated her fellow uh, women in Israel. Um, those am- uh, among us who are teaching or leading children in any way, maybe you're, you're a teacher, you're a parent, uh, I'd say the other end of this is if you work with people who are elderly, um, that you have an opportunity to expose God's precious daughters and sons to beauty that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. We have so many people in our city that are warehoused away, um, whether they're warehoused away in a classroom or a hospital bed or whatever the case may be, but but you who are able-bodied and have access to beauty can then expose God's precious daughters and sons to beauty they would otherwise never see. This is what it means to be creative on God's behalf. Um, uh, there's another thing that we do here at Emmanuel. Uh, one of our artists, Tyler Thompson, leads uh, a variety show, <laughs> a variety show with all kinds of, of variety called Fixed Abode. And every once in a while, he'll bring together poets, musicians, uh, visual artists, uh, artists young and old, bring them all together and sell tickets that benefit the refugees, it help refugees get settled here in Chicago. My hope is that Emmanuel becomes and continues to become uh, a place where art can be shared, art can be received, and art can be refined. This is the church being the church, where art can become better and then turn outward in love of neighbor and upward in praise of God in all kinds of ways. Andy Crouch wrote a book called Culture Making, 
and he talks about this uh, uh, in culture making. Here's what he says. So, do you want to make culture? Or another way to say this, do you want to be creative as you're called to be? He says this, find a community uh, who can lovingly fuel your dreams and puncture your illusions. Find friends and form a family who are willing to see grace at work in one another's lives. Who can discern together which gifts and which crosses each has been called to bear. And we, bo- we have both gifts and crosses in our work of creativity. You can't have one without the other. So we need people to help us discern that. And he says, uh, find people who have a holy respect for power and a holy willingness to spend their power alongside the powerless. Find some partners in the wild and wonderful world beyond the church doors. And then together, make something of the world. The truth is that we cannot bear God's image alone. We can only bear God's image in uh, integrated, messy conversation and community with one another. Where together we can celebrate that God has dealt with our menacing threats. Where together uh, we can celebrate that he has given us vision. We can remind each other of the vision. We can sing the songs of Israel when we want to complain. And then together we can see that our crosses and our gifts are being brought together in response of praise to Jesus Christ and love for the people that Jesus Christ is seeking in our city. This is the life that God intended for us when he said, be fruitful and multiply. And it is the calling on our church uh, to, when we most need it, receive vision from God and be creative in worship and in love of neighbor. So let's do that together as a people who have been re-enchanted by the living God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.